Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda. Talk 6 by Asha Praver, March 20, 2012, copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Okay, great souls. So we are now into... I think I started reading last week, he had the ability to enjoy everything with the joy of God. Did we give that full enough attention? Did we think so? So, Ganesh, I don't know if you know anything about what we're doing in this class. <laughs> we are using Swami Kriyananda's recently published biography of Yogananda. We are working on chapter 17, which is called Yogananda's Salient Characteristics. And by understanding the way Yogananda expressed in this world, we're trying to understand how we should express in this world. There's 32 characteristics, and we just finished number nine last week. So you are in the bit of the middle of a story, but it should make sense to you in any case. Okay, any comments or thoughts about anything? All right, then we'll move on from joy, because I think we did deal with joy pretty well. So number 10, and I love this one. He was surprisingly innovative. He built, as far as I know, the first motorhome. He called it a house car and used it to travel about the country lecturing. He told me he'd invented the toilet lid. He was also the first to suggest placing the gear shift of a car on the driving shaft rather than in the floor. We drove into Detroit with our invention, he told me. People were very impressed. <laughs> That's so cute. Also, apparently, Master was one of the people who developed a lot of the uh, meat substitutes. I believe he gave some of the recipes to Loma Linda, who then commercialized them. He, did, he experimented with making gluten out of flour, and then the texture of it being more like meat, and then all the different ways you could flavor it. You know, he was trying to teach vegetarianism long before it was popular, when people were really incomprehensible on the idea. Are you having a problem, John? It does it sound staticky? Okay, I'll go get David's microphone. I'm on the same receiver but a different microphone so we can at least find out which part of it is broken. How's that? Okay, so it's that microphone that's not working. Okay. So um so I was starting to say he he invented helped invent a lot of the meat substitutes and he was always sort of coming up with ideas. You may remember what he called the Temple of Silence, which was a a thing that plugged your ears and then had a little star dangling in the front of it so you could stare at the spiritual eye. Was it a pyramid, in fact? Oh, I never saw it. So it was a pyramid shape. You know, just like he... It, his mind was very, very creative. It's actually a really important point on the spiritual path and characteristic, I would think, of, all, of, of spiritual people in general, but certainly a characteristic of our path. And since what we're really trying to understand here is particular attunement with this line of gurus, it's a very notable feature that our master was so creative and that Swami Kriyananda, of course, setting the tone for us, is also so creative and so creative in so many different fields. And we also have to appreciate that this is not commonly the way people think about spirituality. You know, there's so many things about our path that those of us who were raised up in it, spiritually speaking, and trained in it, take for granted 
that we don't we don't necessarily realize um, that they are specific characteristics of our path. Now, the reason that matters is not in any sense to be chauvinistic about this path, but to understand how properly as disciples to be in tune with this path. Because there is a common picture of spirituality in which um, our individual impulses are either suppressed or frowned upon or denigrated or it's considered to be more spiritual to do nothing, to have no ambitions, to have, uh, have no creative ideas. But in fact, a master wrote books, he wrote music, he wrote poetry, and, and he, he made inventions. He made inventions about things that had nothing to do with the spiritual path. You know, the, to put a lid on a toilet. I mean, you know, it's, when you think about it, it's an obvious thing to do. But, I mean, and that master took the trouble to tell Swamiji that he was the one who thought of it. You know, it's, it's such a bizarre example in a certain sense. But what it really tells you is that master was trying to improve life everywhere. And later on, when we, in every dimension, I mean, um, later on in, in these characteristics, one of the things that Swami speaks of is that master had a quantitative as well as a qualitative view of uplifting uh, humanity. That just in every way that he could advance civilization and the well-being of human beings, he did that. I mean, far from yawning at this world and turning aside, he was engaged completely. And in this way, he was in stark contrast to his own guru. Um, The story you have of Sri Yukteswar, um, I think it's in this book that it's told that when Yogananda came to America and started... Americanizing these teachings, he started advertising, and he they describe in there how uh, I guess it was Rashid who helped promote his work and put up these big posters and advertised him in a certain way, and that Master himself was a little taken aback by it because it seemed um, at the very least a little undignified, and and it was certainly unprecedented in the context that he'd come from. Lahiri Mahashaya didn't even allow disciples to tell each other that they were disciples. And he wouldn't allow any organization to be founded. What to speak of advertising? And Sri Yukteswar positively drove disciples away. Far from trying to create a worldwide movement, he did his best to sort of you know, uh, keep it as uh, narrowly confined as possible. And then Yogananda comes and starts putting up giant posters and advertising and uh, doing things to draw people and doing he- healing miracles on the stage and all kinds of things. So he actually, rumors went back to India and he came under a lot of criticism. You know, Yogananda has gone to the materialistic country on the other side of the planet and has um, betrayed the teachings. He's lost his calling. I mean, those were the kind of things that were said about him. And so when Yogananda went back, and this is written in this book, not in full detail, but went back to his guru, um, Sri Yukteswar questioned him a little. And that was when Yogananda said, well, sir, you're a goldsmith, you can work with the pure metal, but I have to make jewelry out of it. So in order to make it hold the form, I have to add a little alloy. I can't just work with the pure thing. And that was, and then Sri Yukteswar, of course, understood. And then, again, they have that part where Yogananda wanted to, to improve his guru's ashram, buy him some conveniences, and Sri Yukteswar said, my asana and my bed are perfectly clean and neat and the rest of it is your world. 
meaning that our, our missions here, they were both avatars, but their missions were entirely different. So uh, Master coming to the West, first of all, to take this teaching out of India and to come to what, for all intents and purposes, was really a heathen country in the idea, in the view of the Indians. You know, we think of ourselves as being so advanced, but the Indians were had great commiseration for those handful of sadhus who had to leave India and come to this um, spiritual wasteland, which in truth it is. I mean, in the, there are stories of the, some of the swamis of the Ramakrishna order who came over just before and about the same time Yogananda did. And uh, one of them writes that he was prepared to live only on popcorn. Don't ask me why popcorn. Because he just didn't know if it was possible to get a vegetarian diet in America. You know, because in their own country it was one thing, but, um, you know, the meat-eating Westerners were very well known. So, uh, known for that. You know, so it was a very different reality. But Master just embraced it as just one more expression of of God's Leela and then felt that it was his job to see things always in a new way. Yes, Ramani. Would you pass that to her, please? Um, I chuckled in that article that um, the, I don't know who it was, that wrote in the Huffington Post uh, at the Mahasamadhi time when... He, I, did you see it? You but, mean recently? Yeah, no, just oh. a few weeks ago. <clears throat> it was published, and uh, it was Daya Taylor that sent it out. I'll send uh-huh. it to you. But anyway, it was a wonderful article about Master. And, uh-huh. um, and he said it didn't take Yogananda long to notice that um, Americans became religious on Sunday, so he quickly had organs and Sunday services <laughs> yeah. going. Well, that's true. Sunday was the day. Yeah, it's true. Sunday service was not an Indian tradition, but Master immediately adopted it because that's how the Westerners saw it. That's exactly right. Very good. Um, uh, But what he's also setting the example, because on one hand you look at who he was, and on the other hand we look at what it means for us, which is that for us to just dully go along and think we're being spiritual because we're not really putting out enough energy to be engaged in anything, is not the example of discipleship that either Swamiji or Master, uh, the, the example of spiritual living or the example of discipleship that Swamiji sets for us. Nor do we have to be narrow in our definition of what it is to be spiritual because that's the other tremendous um, pitfall that spiritual people tend to fall into. They tend to just decide that, you know, all I'm about is my kriyas and my energization and I just can kind of turn my brain off in everything else that I do because it really doesn't matter. But it matters because uh, to be creative is to be in tune with the flow of the divine. And to be creative is to be in tune with superconsciousness. And to be creative or to not be dull is to be at least rajasic rather than tamasic and hopefully sattvic in our inspiration. Um, So we have to have the courage also to think differently and be differently. And even if our interests take us along what seem to be parallel or peripheral bypaths, we have to realize so did masters. You know, and Swamiji has written books in all areas of society, about all areas of life. I mean, in order 
to show that there is a Kriya Yoga way to do it. You know, whether it's psychology or material success or leadership or creative art or educating children or conducting a marriage. You know, there would be the thought that why would a spiritual person even teach about marriage? Why wouldn't he just teach about Ramacharya? If Yogananda came, as some people actually assert, to start a new monastery, then why would the subject of marriage even come up? He would just turn his back on it. But every area of life um, has a spiritual dimension, especially as we go into Dwapara Yuga. Swamiji often um, holds up with uh, great approval the work that Bharat has done as Joseph Cornell because he, he himself single-handedly really, more than most people, most of us seem to realize, created a whole revolution in nature education. And he started when he was quite young with his classic book, Sharing Nature with Children. And he's a, he's a world figure. And c- countries, you know, follow his methods. Um, and uh, he d- he's done it all without ever um, explicitly mentioning his association with Ananda, his discipleship to Master, or his practice of Kriya Yoga. But it's been a completely consistent, in tune, and absolutely creative application of the teachings to a a seemingly unrelated area. Although attunement with nature, of course, is for many people a a doorway to the divine. But it's just been an act of uh, attunement and service. And so many of us Many people, many of you, many people may have ideas and inspirations in fields that seem unrelated. But Master himself was innovative. And, and that's just how Swami puts it. He innovated. He innovated whatever he touched. And that very act is in itself um, a way of attuning ourselves. See, there was a thought I had in mind. Hold on for just a minute. Um, Yes, Alan. John, the volume on this uh, question speaker is much too loud. It's hard for us to hear. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, I did not change the channel. I only changed the physical microphone, so it makes no difference to you. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, Yogananda, in the CDs that are available, speaks in one of them about having a spiritual United States of the world. Uh-huh. And that's the thing I, that I like so much is that he's not ignoring the world. He's right. pushing into the world, yeah. trying to pull the world. In, forward, really. Yeah. And a lot of things, you know, that a master will say... Excuse me, did I interrupt you? No. No. A lot of things a master will say are not for now. You know, so much has been made of the things that Jesus wrote and every little word has been studied and... Swamiji points out that a lot of what he said may not even have been said at all in the context in which he said it because only later did the meanings become clear and tremendous number of things that Master mentions he mentions also so that disciples now and in the future will be able to realize that this is something that the Guru wanted and when they feel inspiration toward those things they won't have to question in their own hearts whether or not this is a God-inspired or Guru-inspired action That's one of the um, disputes that Swamiji has had enormously with SRF, where when Self-Realization Fellowship has been disinclined to follow a certain direction, they have literally tried to expunge that idea from the record of Master's work. 
um, feeling that whatever they're doing is the definition of his work, where Swamiji recognizes that it's so vitally important to realize everything that he intended because sooner or later um, it can, will, or should be picked up by some disciple somewhere. And, you know, when Swamiji first felt the impulse... And Swamiji is so interesting in this because even though he's just astonishingly creative and extremely innovative himself, um, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, Um, whenever he wants to go in a new direction, he often meditates a long time to make sure it's consistent with Master's vibration. Either that he can find something that Master said about it that will, will help him to know that or he can feel intuitively that it's true. Um, for example, when uh, the idea came to include guitars in the chanting, and Master never chanted with a guitar, he only chanted with a harmonium. So I mean, he spent a long time thinking about that until he sort of came to the conclusion that the rhythm, that Master often used a drum, and that the rhythm created by the guitar would be helpful to the chanting. But he's warned us on a number of occasions over the years not to stray too far from the simplicity of how Master played. He didn't play chords either. He just played very simple on the harmonium and just the harmonium in the voice, lest we begin to develop something that is completely outside of what he did, because we don't always know. And so that balancing point between being very creative and also being very in tune is always a, a challenge. So Master's political interest and interest in world government and so on is very significant. I think of it also, and we talked about this right after Steve Jobs died, and especially after I read his biography, so I knew more about his life. And and it's only a paragraph in the book, but of course it, it's read letters to those of us who are on Yogananda's path, that he read Autobiography of a Yogi, that I believe they wrote, it was the only book on his iPad, and that every, years for 30 years, every year for 30 years he read that book again. I mean, it's one paragraph in the biography. From our point of view, you think it's the whole book. But anyway, it was a big deal to all of us. But what the interesting point is that I think his home couldn't, be, couldn't have been two miles from here. Um, at one point, he considered putting his son, who was six years old at the time, into our summer camp, never our school. So he was fully conscious of this place, is what I mean. Never set foot in it. You know, so if, if his call to Yogananda had been in any way similar to ours, you would think he would have at least poked his nose in just to see what was going on here, but he never did. But nonetheless, that book held him so strongly and therefore Master's vibration was with him sufficiently for that to be the fact of his life. And as I understand it also, he called SRF to get permission to put, I think he wanted, when the iPad was ready, he wanted to install Autobiography of a Yogi. I mean, in the, in the whole of the Apple system, he wanted that to be the first book that was put on the first iPod. And he asked their permission to do it, and SRF didn't take it seriously. This is what I read on their website or something. First, they thought it was a joke. It was iTunes, that's what it was. He wanted it to be the first on iTunes. And they thought it, they thought it was a, a joke of some sort. They didn't really appreciate it. And then, of course, they figured it out and gave him permission to do it. But you can see that that man single-handedly has helped create Dwapara Yuga, is helping to create it. So we mustn't in ourselves be narrow or sectarian in our concept of Master's interests or influence. 
and think that if you're not wearing a certain color, taking a certain initiation, do certain practices, or a member of certain groups, um, that you're not in tune or capable of being uplifted by Master because he was innovative. He was interested in everything. It's, it's, really, it's a very important point to contemplate because religions usually die in a very predictable pattern. And one of those predictable patterns is that innovation becomes the enemy because innovation is a threat to orthodoxy. And when people are creative, they're harder to control. And uh, things can get confused. I always say to people that you should feel free to be very, very creative in what you do. But if you're going to be creative, you also have to be receptive to correction. Because if you're creative, sometimes you're taking chances and you're not always right. Um, As I say sometimes, not all of my ideas are good ones. We were singing, as you may recall, Many Hands Make a Miracle at the end of service, and we were all just totally enjoying it. We were having such a good time that I I sent a letter out to all the colony leaders. I had discussed it with Swamiji, and I had the impression that he thought about it carefully and had approved. Um, However, this round he didn't, emphatically not. And so that which we were all enjoying um, was nixed. And I struggled against it beyond the point that I should have, but it was crushed because some of my ideas are better than others, you know. It was just felt to be too outward for that point in the service and to to the wrong direction. I understand, and I actually don't disagree. It, we, You know, we had our reasons. But you can be creative, but then you have to be subject to being corrected. And if you don't have the nerve to be corrected, then you probably don't have the nerve to be creative. But both are a dead loss, you can see. A master just went forward. And a lot of master's enterprises failed. You should know that. His world brotherhood colony failed, did not succeed. His his school for children did not succeed. You know, he had a, a carrot juice factory and a goat milk farm and a papaya grove. And, you know, he tried many, many different things. Either they did not take hold in his own lifetime or after his death, his followers abandoned them. So, you know, the mere capacity to win popular support or to have your invention, whatever it might be, or your innovation endure is not in itself the only judge of the rightness of an action. Some ideas are ahead of their times. And some ideas are simply better than others. And innovation for its own sake sometimes is useful. Swamiji himself has expressed a degree of frustration at times when, as he puts it, People, well, he wrote this in the path, too, about the way they followed Master. Instead of, as he put it, sensitively tuning in to what the Master was trying to accomplish, they just ran around sometimes like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to do what he said. And it wasn't doing what he said, it was being in tune with what he was trying to make happen, which were sometimes the same thing, but not always. And Swamiji himself says sometimes he just tries to get the energy going with, with new ideas. And it's frustrating to him when he knows someone actually has a better idea but won't say it because of fear of what? Of not being accepted, not of risking, of all the different things. But sometimes his ideas are not the best, they're just the best ones around at the moment and let's get the energy moving. In working with Swamiji over the years, I'm by no means ideal at this, but I've begun 
I, I learned, I have learned, that if he makes a suggestion that I can't actually tune into the suggestion itself, some are self-evidently good, but sometimes the suggestions are not obvious to me. I try to tune into what is he trying to accomplish and what, what's behind the suggestion, in other words. And often when I think, what is he trying to accomplish, then in fact I can improve on his suggestion because maybe I'm, I mean, if it's something that I'm closer to the situation or maybe have more knowledge or just something. And all of a sudden I can feel where he's trying to go and then can move with him. David and uh, I moving to uh, Palo Alto was actually a case in point. Um, This was now many years ago. But our work at that time, mine especially, but David often came with me, was to travel around and lecture. And we, for a few years, we did it for four or five years actually. Yeah, I think so. And uh, not continuously, but often. And we were, a lot of energy really took hold in Seattle and also in Portland, but especially in Seattle. And we would go up there for several weeks at a time, several times a year. And uh, people really looked forward to our coming and we had a really wonderful group up there. And half-jokingly, um, a few of the people there, one man in particular who, who was a man with a lot of financial resources, basically asked us, what would it take for you to move here permanently? Oh, a house on the water, a boat, you know. We just we sort of <laughs> made a list and he promised it all to us if we would just move there. So we came back um, from that um, particular trip and said to Swamiji, um, maybe we should move to Seattle. No, he said, that's not a good idea. I want you here at the village. That's what he said. So we said, okay. I mean, it, wasn't, it was just more like it seemed like we ought to say it. Then not very long afterwards, a matter of days, I think, or a week at the most, the second-hand news came to us that Swamiji was talking about having us go take over the center we had in San Francisco, which was a big house there, which uh, David was really not keen on doing for a whole lot of reasons. And I was bewildered because Swamiji himself had said that San Francisco was the hardest city for spiritual teaching in the entire world. He said, because it's a very fickle, pleasure-loving city. And he said, you get energy going there and you come back in six months and everything you've got going has dissipated. You have to start over from scratch. I haven't had enough experience teaching there to know, but I understand other people say the same thing. So I thought to myself, you know, the one thing I do is give classes. Why would Swamiji send me to the worst teaching city in the, in the country? It just seems like, like, you know, why throw me into such deep waters? And then it just came into my head, he wants us to volunteer for Palo Alto. Yeah, I just sort of followed the sequence. No, you can't go to Seattle. I want you at the village. I'll send you to San Francisco. That's a loony idea. So we went back. I went, we went back to him and I said, would you like us to move to Palo Alto? Yes, he said, I think that would be excellent. You know, just like, where is he going? Because a lot of times, you know, advanced souls work with energy. Smaller minds work with details. But uh, spiritual people often work with the energy. And it, it's, not always, it's not always linear because there's a flow of energy. Even like that story that, I'm not, I think it's in here, where Master asked someone to paint the room. And before, as the man Oliver Rogers said, before he even had time to buy the paint, Master and Rogers, he were sitting together in the room, and Master looked at the, around the room and said, imagine... 
you know. Oliver painted this whole room all by himself. And Rajasri looked at the clearly unpainted room and smiled at Mr. Rogers and just let the issue pass. But, you know, for Master, the thought of it and the doing of it were all the same flow to him. It just, he just knew it was done and time didn't matter. I had that experience with Swamiji. This is, this is unrelated to innovation, but um, many years ago, this was actually when I, 1971, probably, the summer of 71. He asked Davy and I to come over and clean up, clean up his house. He didn't have regular housekeepers at the time and he just couldn't be bothered. Plus it was a way of having us over at his house. And uh, no, it wasn't exactly at that time. That was something slightly different. But anyway, I, I got into the habit of from time to time cleaning up his house. And when I was his secretary, I did. And he gave Kriya initiation once or twice a year. And to give the Kriya, he had a small brass bowl that had what, we, what was called kumkum powder, which is powder from India, the colored powder that makes a mark. And he would use that every six months at the most, maybe every 12 months to dip his finger in and make the mark when he would bless people at Kriya. And to my way of thinking, the fact that it was used so infrequently meant that it really ought to be stored. That's how I thought about it. So he kept it in an open, in the little open container so he could just pick it off and go give Kriya up on a bookshelf. And I was going to take it down and put the powder into a jar and close it and label it and wash out the brass cup and put it away. And he must have read my intention. I was in the middle. I reached the thing down. He wasn't in the same room. He was out of sight of where I was. But he must have been able to tell both from my thoughts and the sound of where I was in the house. Leave that there, he said. I'm using it. (laughs) And I've actually, you know, I've really thought about that a lot through the years because that was just his flow of energy. It was an active part of his life and therefore it was an item in use. It wasn't a category to be blocked away. I actually have things in my life that I use once or twice a year that I leave out for the same reason. I've noticed that I've come into a very similar relationship to lots of things. Life is a flow. Now all of this came out of the idea of innovation, which is not being trapped in smallness, but really realizing how many possibilities there are and not and having the courage to just follow those possibilities and just see where they take you. Isn't it interesting? This is our, this is our path. This is the Dwapara Yuga path. This is the new dispensation. It's quite different. Fun, huh? I mean, you know, some monasteries, especially Catholicism, you know, prides itself on it all being exactly the same. And there is a certain relaxation in that. When I was living in the monastic order at Ananda in the very early years, when it was, you know, very, very formless, well, not completely, but largely, and I recall thinking to myself and talking with my fellow sisters on this about uh, what it would be like to live in a monastic order that had such a fixed routine that you essentially knew exactly what you would be doing on any day from that point to the end of your life. I mean, on one hand, it could be, or just give you a terrifying sense of entrapment, um, which some of us used to worry about the walls of the monastery closing in on us and finding ourselves in such a situation. And the other side of it was what a tremendous sense of relaxation 
it could give you. To realize that you had no options, you, you didn't need to consider any options except your consciousness. Just to keep your consciousness centered at all times. I mean, that's the purpose of that kind of a routine, is to just take away from you all anxiety and all preoccupation. You could see it could be either make you into a dullard, which it often does, or it could also make you into a saint. You could take it either way. Uh, unfortunately, it too often makes people into dullards. And it isn't the Dwapara Yuga way. So we're into something else now. Um, later on this year, in the webinars I give, I'm speaking on the book, um, Art is a Creative Art is a Path to Self-Realization. What is it called now? It's Swamiji's book about art. Art is a Hidden Message used to be its name. Is that its still name? Is that still its name? Anyway, but it's the importance of creativity on the spiritual path, even artistic creativity. It's a very, very interesting subject. And it comes right out of quality number 10. He was surprisingly innovative. Even that word, surprisingly, that his mind would go in so many directions. Well, any questions or thoughts about that? Yes. reading in one of Swami's publications, to be spiritual, you must be creative. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. To be spiritual, you must be creative. I mean, being spiritual is to be creative because God is ever new. You know, God's, the definition of Satchitananda is ever new bliss, which means that it's always being recreated every moment. Isn't that interesting? Master says somewhere that you should change your habits on a regular basis so that you don't just get into dull routines. Not too regular. What do you mean? Not too regular basis. On a not too regular basis? Are you quoting his actual words? To be irregular. Oh, I see. I get it. Okay. <laughs> now I hear it. I thought you were correcting my quote and I got confused. That's all right. Yes, because then to be unexpected becomes your habit. <laughs> Right. A friend of mine, uh, when he had a surgery and was still sort of more than he realized affected by the anesthesia, he said he, he got dressed in the morning. It was like a few days after the surgery. Later in the day, he realized that he had combed his hair in a way that he hadn't combed it since he was in junior high. <laughs> and he did it completely unconsciously. It was just like he was so much in his subconscious that just a complete other habit asserted itself. And it was only when he looked in the mirror later that he was, in whatever it was, he didn't describe it, whatever it was was so notable that he was shocked to see it there. This, was, this happened to me once, but I mean, I'm a fairly conscious person, so maybe this happens to other people more often. Like late in the afternoon, I realized that I was wearing two different earrings. I mean, completely different earrings. And it was, I remembered picking out one and I just had no recollection whatsoever of how I decided to pick out a different one for the other side. Very small matter, but it was extremely unsettling to me to realize that I could become so unconscious as to just do something like that and not have any recollection of doing it. You know, some of those questions on those personality tests ask you things like, do you find yourself places without remembering how you got there? 
Meaning, do you lose consciousness of your own life on a regular basis? Which, of course, not everything one does is interesting, but to lose consciousness of one's life is not good. And uh, Swamiji commented about, like, you know, go, ride, the way people ride the subways, for example, in New York City, with their consciousness so shut down. I mean, there's not much on the subway you want to be conscious of, but the habit of shutting down your consciousness can become a habit. And just, uh, well, some of you were there this morning when I, I heard and I later read an article that came out in the New York Times about experiments that were done with fruit flies. And the experiments were done um, in the context of trying to find a cure for substance abuse, for alcoholism and drug abuse and other kinds of addictions. And it's trying to, you know, track the chemical changes in the brain and what triggers them. This was an actual experiment where fruit flies, male fruit flies, were exposed, were brought into the company of female fruit flies. And some of the male fruit flies were allowed to mate with the female fruit flies. And others were introduced to the mates, at a, to the, the females. The males were introduced to the females at a time when the females were not going to respond. And those fruit flies who did not get a response from the females later were 30% more inclined to drink the alcohol-laced juice, food that was given to them than the ones who'd gotten a response from the female. And some kind of a further something or another in the brain of the, does a fruit fly have a brain? But whatever, however they look, there was some similarity in the chemical composition of the alcoholically inclined fruit flies and the alcoholically inclined human being. I mean, there's so many parts of that that just make you shudder from top to toe. Like, how early do all these habits begin? And that was the part of it. You know, there's this cosmic picture of the two directions our consciousness can go. And our consciousness can try to ease its suffering and increase its joy by expanding our awareness, or it can try to ease its suffering by dulling its awareness and call that dullness an increase in joy, not because it's an increase in joy, but because it's a diminution of pain. See, there's a huge difference between pain seeming smaller because joy has expanded, and pain seeming smaller because awareness has dulled. And one is superconscious, and one is subconscious in orientation. And fruit flies, suffering from rejection by the female try to drown their sorrows in alcohol. (laughs) Horrifying, isn't it? No wonder it's so hard to get free. I mean, just think, somewhere buried, you know, in in the depths of our samskars is the memory of being one of those perhaps experimental fruit flies, (laughs) deliberately tortured and then invited to get drunk. (laughs) Ludicrous, isn't it just unbelievable, but there it was with live links in the New York Times or Science Magazine or something, I don't remember now, honestly. On the part of the fruit flies. Yeah, the, the, the winning result would have been to be non-attached. To be, what was it somebody said, this is completely off the subject and then we'll take a break. Um, there was this whole discussion about 
how many walnuts squirrels bury and then how many of those walnuts they leave buried and never go dig them up? And somebody responded, well, maybe some of those squirrels are Mormons. (laughs) Who have a policy of storing a year's worth of food and never touching it. (laughs) So, there could be other explanations. Maybe some were monastically inclined. That's the 70% that didn't drown their sorrows in alcohol. Let's take a break. (laughs) Okay, let's take a short break. Okay, number 11. Another fact I noticed about him was that he was completely positive. One time I mentioned something humorous, but not complimentary, about someone. He scolded me for being negative. Am I negative, Master? I asked. Sometimes, he replied. But there is a great deal of positive in your nature also. Why look at the drains, he said to us on another occasion, when there is so much beauty all around. I love that. Why look at the drains? The, the fact of the matter is, you see, he knew perfectly well the drains were there, so it's an interesting way to put it. It wasn't a naive sort of denying of the fact that there are often two sides to a situation. He just said, in as much as there are two sides to a situation, why would you want to put your attention on the drains when there is so much else to look at? You know, you can't encompass everything, you're going to be oriented in one direction or another. So that's really what he was trying to say. And the, um, the power of thought is so much greater than most of us appreciate that we, if we had any concept of how powerful our thoughts were, we wouldn't be tossing them about so lightly. You know, we, we treat them in a rather profligate way in a sense. Um, never really understanding how much those thoughts are creating not only our own reality, but the reality of people around us. We think if we're only thinking of it, it has no effect, but it has all the effect in the world. And so the masters are training us, uh, you know, first guard your speech, but above all, guard the inclination that you have to view life this way. Swamiji has certainly learned, certainly learned that lesson from Swamiji, from Master. There's a story I tell in the book I wrote about him where he was with that very worldly couple who were quite disharmonious with each other. I happened to, um, you know, the context of the story, I wasn't present, but I happened to know the couple. It's it's not anybody who's part of Ananda. It was an outside associate in Europe, so it's not anybody that any of you would know. But they were very um, not uplifting to be in their company. They had some really bad habits with each other. And um, the devotees that were with Swamiji when the dinner was finally over and they separated from that couple, the man, uh, you know, my, my friend, my peer said to Swamiji, oh, I'm so glad to be away from them. The negativity, be- negativity between them was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And Swamiji said, was it? Like that. And uh, my friend was just astonished. How could you not have noticed and then he recited a number of examples of exchanges between the couple responses that were you know, just so indicative of such a downward pulling energy. And Swamiji stopped and contemplated for a while and realized that without ever characterizing or, 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 or perceiving or conceptualizing their energy as negative, every response on his part had been to uplift and to move them in a positive direction. So he'd so purged from his mind 
those thoughts. But nonetheless, he responded appropriately. And it's sort of a fun exercise, if you can discipline your mind to do it, to practice going through your life in a very practical, very grounded, very let's get the things done way without ever really actually having to say anything negative and still tell the truth. You know, um, there was this one uh, person at Ananda, a woman at Ananda, that many people had a hard time getting along with because she was so forceful in her response to life. And Swamiji's comment about her only was, don't you just love her intensity? <laughs> and when I wrote him specifically about an individual that I was really having difficulty working with, he said, well, when I'm with that person, he said, their personality just takes up so much room that I just don't bother to have a personality of my own. You know, it was just like, okay, that's the way they are. Let's not, why, do we, why would we characterize this as a problem? This is just a fact. This person's personality just takes up all the space in the room. So why bother to have a personality of your own instead of saying such and so is an appallingly domineering soul? You know, or uh, another phrase that Swami has used, which I've just loved when someone complained about someone, he said, yes, they do have a rather unfortunate manner, is how he put it. You know, other people, unfortunate is hardly the word that others would have used. But you know, well, it's an unfortunate manner. That was a fact. It was a truthful statement. But you can see how sort of, how much room there is to go forward. And oftentimes in situations where Swamiji has put someone in a position of responsibility, even if they're not succeeding at that, he won't, he won't entertain any criticism. And it's not because he's not aware, but he knows the power of thought. And if he's put someone in a position of responsibility, as long as they're going to have that responsibility, he'll back them and support them. You know, until such time as it's going to be helpful either to make a change or make a correction. But he just won't randomly let people, you know, complain about others' incompetence or failings because he understands the power of thought. And Master trained him to be positive. With the situation you were referring to, Nishkama, when we were engaged in all those years of litigation and ended up with a trial over here at the San Mateo County Courthouse in Redwood City. Um, Sai Ganesha might not be as aware of these details, but anyway, it was a memorable experience. And the trial lasted about four months, and it was a completely, absolutely completely fabricated uh, sexual harassment lawsuit that was just nothing but a fabric of lies. Well, we were declared to be pretty scummy. You know, despicable is actually the word. Um, but, you know, it was just despicable in this way and despicable in that way and uh, never really as horrid as we were portrayed. But it was a jury trial, and uh, every, everything went wrong. It was just awful. And, and Swamiji and all of the principal players were staying at our house and having breakfast around our breakfast table every morning, Monday through Friday, for the duration of that. And every day was worse than the day prior, and predictably so. And every morning, Swamiji would come down to breakfast and say, well, I think the tide is really turning in our favor. I think juror number 12 is really looking sympathetic. Don't you think so? And everyone around the table would say, no, no, no. Things were awful yesterday and are going to be worse today. I mean, more or less, that would be our consistent response. Until virtually the last day, when finally something 
I got my head screwed on correctly after weeks of being on the naysaying side, it occurred to me that Swami was perfectly conscious of what was going on in that courtroom, far more conscious than the rest of us. After all, he is not stupid. But he was just trying to get a modicum of positive magnetism going for us. And we did our absolute best to just drain it out as soon as he brought it up. In the name of, I don't know what. So that last morning, I at least said, oh yes sir, I think it's absolutely true. And you know, everybody else at the breakfast table just looked at me like I too had just, where have I been for this last ten years while this was going on? But months later, after the whole thing was over, and we did lose the jury verdict, but as Romani points out, we, we lost the battle, but we definitely won the war. Um, we just emerged from the whole ordeal stronger and more focused and more confident and, and ultimately more dynamic and more successful than we ever were before it happened. Um, I sort of talked to Swamiji about this and I described to him essentially what I described And I said, you know, it took me till the last day to realize that you were just trying to generate some positive magnetism, weren't you? He said, of course. I said, but it's a fine line, isn't it, between um, really... Because I said so many people, and even in the course of those lawsuits that we went through, because I was often in the vanguard of communicating with people who were less well-informed because there was a tremendous amount of this can't be shared and that can't be shared and this is under a confidentiality order from the court and this is evidence and and lawyers like to keep things secret. So there was was a, a lack of transparency sometimes in our position, even with our own people. And there was a lot of people who were totally freaked out by the fact that we had, we that Ananda itself was engaged in this complex, expensive, and actually in the end, twelve years of litigation, which is just almost incomprehensible because we're such nice people. <laughs> and so there was an inclination um, to want to escape from the situation, to not um, stand on the front line and do the battle. And that desire to escape took many forms, including, well, you know, we're not all that good anyway. Or a refusal to believe um, the facts of the matter as, as they were. Um, sometimes because people were not informed, but also because there was a strong desire to have those facts be different. Because the facts being what they actually were demanded from us an absolutely unrelenting defense and an utter inability to compromise or capitulate because there was simply no compromise with honor offered to us even though we would have taken it if there had been. But a lot of people don't like conflict. And so out of a desire for their... And a lot of people prefer... To, to say, well, where there's smoke, there must be fire. Or my, what grew to be my least favorite phrase, well, the truth must be somewhere in the middle. No, sometimes the truth is not in the middle. Sometimes there is such a thing as a lie. 
and that evil attacks goodness. It happens, you know, get over it, accept it. But many people were very, 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 very uncomfortable with such a position. And as a consequence, they would often try to be positive because they didn't want to be realistic. And they would try to be positive um, about the, in this sense, positive about um, the opposition, so to speak, in the lawsuit. And, and try to pretend that that was a more spiritual attitude than the uncompromising defense that was actually the position we had to take. But it was not a more spiritual attitude. It was cowardice. That's what I'm trying to say. So when I was having this conversation with Swamiji, which was about the litigation, I told him, you know, it's a little sensitive because um, so often people have tried to present a positive outlook to me and I know that they're trying to use that to defend their cowardice. And so I said, you know, you have to be positive not because you're afraid of a possible negative outcome or the necessity to do battle or the fact of evil in the world, but because you're completely comfortable with all those realities and then still can see a positive dimension beyond all of that. So I said, it's a very fine line, isn't isn't it? He said, yes. He said, and and essentially, I said, you can, I don't want to use the word play the game. I mean, that's the phrase. That's not the phrase I used to him. But I said, "You you can negotiate this at a much higher level than most of us can. He said, yes. Because he's fearless. So he can really have no ulterior motive and can then assert a reality that the strength of his consciousness can actually create rather than assert a reality because he's afraid to face circumstances as they actually are. You see how subtle that becomes? Now that doesn't mean that criticism is justified at all because we're not talking about the desire to just poke holes in everybody else's reality in order to make yourself, I don't know what, feel smarter or better. But it's an attitude toward life in which you know how difficult it is. Swami was perfectly conscious of everything that was going on in that courtroom and yet he knew that Divine Mother was in charge and the outcome would be positive. And one of the ways he was trying to get us on board was to just even see, you know, even be optimistic about circumstances instead of as we were constantly, essentially feeding the forces that were trying to defeat us with our own um, belief in their power. You know, we, we, we were constantly affirming the power of those who were trying to pull us down by talking about how well they were doing and how strong they were. And at the same time, draining out our own. Very, very interesting. It was extremely interesting. Yes, Ramani. And I failed the test, I would add, until the very end. Go ahead. What you're describing takes tremendous strength and power. I mean, he has tremendous strength and power mm-hmm. to be able to do that when all around him, even his friends are. Yeah. Um, and I have said the story before, but it was um, I felt that power when um, 
when I was in India and I had the surgery and that negative, you know, I stopped breathing and then they went ahead and then there was a, a, a hit in a crack into the wall to the brain. And, you know, I woke up in ICU and then eventually got home and it, I, it just took a long time to recover. But sometime while I was recovering, I thought I should call Nirmala in Pune and let her know that I'm alive, I'm doing fine, I'm, I'm recovering. So I called her, called her up and I said, I just want you to know that I'm standing up now. <laughs> and uh, she said, Swamiji's here, he wants to talk to you. And he got on the phone and I didn't have time to say anything. He, he, I can't really do this with the microphone. He roared over the phone like a lion, a full lion roar. He said, Romani! <laughs> you know what I was just He said, and in the same power, he said these words, I am so happy to know that you are now well. Yeah. And I was just, I must, inside I was just going, I must be well, I must be well. <laughs> Amazing. And then he chatted. Uh -huh. <laughs> I am so happy to know that you are now that well. I am so happy to know that you are now well. Well, interesting. That. <laughs> yeah. One of the stories in the book um, that I have published was Bharat having a persistent cough for six months. And when he and his wife Anandi went to visit Swamiji, Bharat stayed upstairs and, uh, uh, because he didn't want to uh, impose that cough on Swami. And Swamiji asked Anandi, where's Bharat? He said, well, he's upstairs. Well, have him come down. And then Bharat explained that he had this cough. And Swami said, Bharat doesn't have a cough. Just like that. And he stopped coughing. You know, just if you're always truthful and you're always affirming the superconscious realities, as Patanjali says, your words develop materializing power. We have no idea. We have no idea how powerful we are, and we're so careless with that energy. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. He was showing us that. Yeah. But um, later, much later, in fact, just this last year, I was talking with Miriam, uh -huh. who, and that was how he was keeping track of what was happening to me because she was following. Uh -huh. And uh, Miriam is his nurse. Um, and she said, just simply, she said, Swamiji saved your life. Huh. Yeah. And Miriam's very unequivocal. Yeah. And I believe it so. Swami, but someone was telling me recently about someone who had basically a terminal case of cancer. But uh, Swami's secretary mentioned that the individual was so receptive to Swamiji that the secretary is convinced that you know, the person lived and was healed simply because of their receptivity. And it's not just a question of blind belief, it's an actual attunement of consciousness. Because one can articulate belief without there being that same attunement to superconsciousness. There was a, for a time, uh, David and I were part of the Palo Alto Ministers Association. I don't know if it still goes on. It was a rather small group, and you know, to define it just as Palo Alto was a pretty. They might have merged with some other group. I don't know where it is, but there was a. Uh, I would call him a preacher, just because of the, the style of his religion. I call myself a preacher for that matter, but the style of his uh, ministry. 
And he, I think he was diagnosed with cancer. But he, he sort of made this decision that he, he ought to be able to cure himself without medicine. I really don't know what the end of the story is because I don't know what happened to him. But I didn't know how to say to him, and it certainly wasn't my place to say to him, but you're not in tune with that vibration. That's just a thought to you. Because you could just feel, and I don't mean that a person of his religious persuasion would be incapable of being in tune with that thought. He could easily have been in tune with that thought. But he wasn't. He was merely having that thought, but he wasn't on the vibration of that thought. And I became quite concerned for him. And as I said, I don't know the end of the story. But it was almost like you could feel his own doubt because he he wasn't attuned to the thought. He was merely having the thought. And it was almost like he was going to challenge himself to to prove the thought. But he didn't really believe it. But interestingly, I read a... I listened to the audio book of... I have no idea what the name of the book is now. I just can't recall it. When I when it's an audio book, I don't see the title as often, so it doesn't stay in my mind. Uh, she was a young woman who married about the at the, about the age of nineteen. She married a well-known missionary just before the Second World War. And as a young bride, her her husband was about a dozen years older than her. They went off to somewhere in the South Pacific, um, and got caught in the Second World War and the Japanese took over where they were. They might have been in Indonesia, but my knowledge of what happened in the Second World War in that part of the world is a little sketchy. But anyway, the Japanese invaded and she was put into a, essentially a concentration camp, a prison camp. And her, she, she was separated from her husband and he, he died in that camp. And so sure, she's 19 or 20 years old and in, within a year of having arrived and been married with all this hope, she ends up in a prison camp and spends the next, five, I guess, five years as a prisoner of the Japanese under pretty rigorous conditions. But so many miraculous things happened to her. You know, miraculous cures, miraculous changes. And in the end, just to finish the story, um, it, at one point, the, the head of that prison camp, she was so respected in the camp, she became the leader of the camp virtually. And the head of that prison camp, who was quite a, quite a cruel man, at some point they had just some conversation. And he had great power to hurt her, but instead she felt inspired to talk to him about Jesus, which was, of course, of course her persuasion. And nothing seemed to come of it. And then... Fifteen years later, she found out that he had become a completely devoted Christian, abandoned his way of life, and spent his entire life evangelizing for Christ. You know, it's starting from that experience. But it was such a remarkable story because her theology, you know, bore no resemblance to our way of life and her practices, but she was really in tune on a superconscious level with her beliefs. And so she had the material, her beliefs had materializing power in her life. It was very, it was very um, moving. 
to see how that's true. And that's why theology is just uh, the thinnest veneer. The question is actually whether we are in tune with superconsciousness or are only in tune with subconsciousness or only in in tune with rajas in a way, even though that's not the middle choice. That preacher was a very rajasic, had a very rajasic nature. And uh, so he was too rajasic to be in tune. I mean, maybe God rescued him. Maybe he had more going on than I know. Unfortunately, I can't say. But nonetheless, in the moment, what I perceived was true. So the positivity that Master is asserting here is attunement with a higher reality. And again, it's not merely the discipline of your words, although the discipline of your words is a good place to start. It's the discipline of your whole perception of reality. Because you can still see things exactly as they are. Some people are clumsy. Some people are evil. You know, these things happen. Some people are going to have many incarnations of suffering. Some people are cruel. Um, But nonetheless, if your perspective is big enough you can still understand it for exactly what it is and fearlessly perceive it and fearlessly accept it, but nonetheless orient it towards something positive just by a conscientious training of the perception and well worth doing for thousands of reasons. I mean, Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking is a a really powerful book. And a very powerful truth. I remember reading a book about a man who was a salesman, um, Pep Becker, when we were all trying to be successful business people in the 70s and the 80s at Ananda, when we were just so hopeless in our enterprises. These little self-help books would go around. The market was not nearly so glutted in those days. So this man, um, he got the name Pep when he was a baseball player and was about to be cut from the team because he was so listless he decided that he would just start acting as if, you know, he was just full of energy and talent. and he, So he got the name Pep. And of course, the more he behaved that way, the more he became that way. Later on, when he went on to be a salesman, he knew the statistics that, you know, eight out of ten people will, re- will reject you, or only two out of ten will accept you. So every time he got a rejection, he was just as happy as he could be, because that was one of his eight out of the way. And, you know, it's just how you turn it. Reality is just what it is. You just turn it in another direction. The master was, he was completely positive. That's the word he uses. Okay, I think that's enough for tonight. (laughs) Okay, number 12 we'll start with next week. Whenever we finish this, I have to commit myself to a whole other calendar now, which I suppose is a calendar that goes... I don't know what the calendar is. I'm so confused. June, July, August, September calendar. Basically, I think what we'll probably do is finish this chapter of this book. I don't know whether I'll go elsewhere in this book or just go back to the um, spiritual warrior notes, which I also have to finish. So I may... I mean, I took up this book because of this chapter. Not that there isn't more here to study, but I, I took it up because of this chapter. But I do want to go back and finish that. And so I may just somehow or another try to figure out how to put that into a calendar. I may put in the calendar that this book will continue, but I may in fact not keep my word, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. We're only at 12, and we have 32, so I don't know how long it's going to take us. 
We don't have any scheduled interruptions that I know of until around Swami's birthday. Okay, that's it for tonight.